Good afternoon, and welcome to the Jewish Policy Center webinar. I'm Shoshana Bryan, Senior Director of the JPC, and your host. In keeping with our policy since the 7th of October, we are not here to give you up-to-the-minute military information about what's happening in Gaza or in Israel. Um, the flood isn't manageable. We can't do that. Although I strongly recommend that you find a couple of really reliable news sources and check in with them. Our job here is to provide context, context, to provide a broader framework into which you can put all the little fragments of information that you're getting. Today, we're going to learn more about the Arab reaction to the war that Hamas began on October 7th with a horrific massacre of more than 1,400 Israelis and the vicious wounding of 5,000 other people and the kidnapping of 200 more. Hamas rockets continued to land in Israel. Um, so what do Israel's neighbors think? You know, Israel has neighbors that are at peace with it. Israel has neighbors that are at war with it. And Israel has a lot of neighbors that are just hanging out there. What are they thinking? Our guest today is Hussein Abdul Hussein. I'm going to give you a full introduction later, but Hussein is a uh, watcher of the Arab world and a native Arabic speaker. So we're going to learn something about how the Arabs see the region, how the Arabs see Israel, and how the Arabs see this war. But first, your JPC commercial, because you knew I was going to get that in there. The Jewish Policy Center was established in 1985 as a nonprofit organization providing analysis of both foreign and domestic policies. We support a strong American defense capability, U.S.-Israel security cooperation, and missile defense. Most important right now, we support the legitimacy and security of Israel against anyone who would deny it. And now more than ever, we support the efforts of the government of Israel and the IDF to defend the people of Israel and bring the perpetrators of the massacres and the kidnappers to justice. As an organization that sits slightly to the right of center, the JPHC advocates for small government, low taxes, free trade, fiscal responsibility, energy security, and free speech and intellectual diversity. Free speech being one of those subjects we're gonna to have to address in more detail later. You can find us on our website at jewishpolicycenter.org. That's jewishpolicycenter.org. There you can read our Insight articles and our magazine In Focus Quarterly. You can find our previous webinar programs. And as you know, this is a double week. We have Hussein Abdul Hussein this today, and we also have Professor Ephraim Imbar tomorrow. So go to our website, jewishpolicycenter.org, and you can sign up for tomorrow's webinar. And now our guest. Hussein Abdul Hussein is a research fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. So when I say to you, you should have a reliable source for information on what's going on uh, on a daily basis in Israel and in Gaza, FDD, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, that's one of those places. Hussein focuses on the Gulf region and Yemen, including on Gulf relations with Iran and the Gulf peace with Israel. Born and raised in, Bag in Beirut, Baghdad, and Baalbek, which sounds like the title of his next book, um, he has uh, a degree in history and archaeology from the American University of Beirut. He worked as a reporter and later as managing editor of Beirut's The Daily Star newspaper. He's reported from war zones, including in Lebanon and in Iraq. Here in Washington, he has helped to manage the Arabic satellite network Al Hura, Iraq, after which he headed the Washington Bureau of the Kuwaiti Daily, Al Rai. 
He's been a visiting fellow at London's Chatham House and has published in English in the New York Times and the Washington Post, one of the few authors in those two publications that you should actually read. He's in Arabic everywhere. He's also been quoted everywhere that you imagine he should be and would be, including this morning he was on Fox, and you should probably go find a link for that. Before um, Hussein went to FTD, we met on uh, Twitter, which is like using a blind dating service. You never really know who you're talking to. However, over time, we have gotten to know each other. And I think that Hussein Abdul Hussein is the most credible and most one of the most important people in Washington right now in the middle of a war where you have to know what's going on on all sides. Uh, his article, Why There Is No Palestinian State, is a must read. And you can find that on our website under In Focus, um, which is another reason for me to give you our website, jewishpolicycenter.org. And now, Hussein Abdul Hussein, the floor is yours. Thank you, Shoshana. Thanks for having me on. Uh, let me start by apologizing that I'm talking from airports. In case you hear any announcements, you don't have to run anyway. Uh, this said, uh, you're probably following in you see how everyone got angry at the uh, uh, UN Secretary General for saying that the attack on October 7, the Hamas massacre of 1,400 Israeli civilians, did not come out of nowhere, that it, it, nothing comes out of vacuum. While I disagree with that, I also have to say that, yes, it did not come out of nowhere. The Hamas attack was designed to thwart normalization efforts between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So until October 6th, uh, the Saudis and the Israelis were engaged in indirect peace talks through U.S. mediation. And things were improving and they were getting somewhere. On September 9, the White House announced the plan for uh, the construction of the IMEC, the India-Middle East Corridor, which would have connected India to to, uh, to the Mediterranean, to a railway that went through the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Israel. Uh, I think Hamas wanted to stop all of this uh, integration that was going on, the, the, the peace that was going on. And, and this is partially why Hamas broke all, all the rules of the game that we know of. This game has been going on between Hamas and Israel since 2007, when Hamas took over the strip, not through election, like you would read in most um, foreign and Western and especially US media, but through a coup. So Hamas took over after killing 450 Palestinians who work for the Palestinian Authority in Gaza. They started their rule with a massacre of Palestinians. So I was not surprised when I saw them bursting out of Gaza to commit another massacre this time it was against Israelis. So this in a nutshell is, is what, what, what was going on. By bursting out of Gaza, Hamas changed the rules. Until then, rules had been um, just to have, just to war across the fence. And Israel and Hamas had been engaged in five rounds, six rounds of war before this one. This time Hamas changed the rules. And this time Israel too is changing the rules and has decided that there's no way to live with Hamas. Plus, now we know that there's that living behind the fence is not safe enough. Um, even if Israel wanted to go back to October 6th, now we know that Hamas can fly over the fence, 
can bulldoze the fence and can repeat the massacre that it did. And hence why Israel correctly announced that Hamas should go. Now, how's the Arab reaction? How's the Arab countries' reaction? This would be somehow interesting because if you're not really um, trained, if you're not familiar with what's going on over there, it might look to you as if everyone is angry and crazy and, and shouting and pushing in the same direction. It might seem like they are shouting and pushing in the same direction. But if you look closer, you will see a huge gap. You have two camps. The first camp that's led by Iran. And in, in this camp, you can find Iraq and, it's, and, and the pro-Iran militias. You can find Syria, the, the militias that are in Syria, the pro-Iran militias. You can find Lebanon, which doesn't have a government, which is dominated and, and managed by Hezbollah, pro-Iran Hezbollah anyway. And you also have the Houthis in Yemen. Houthis are a militia that rule Yemen, and they are pro-Iran. This is one camp. The other camp is, is led by Saudi Arabia, which was trying to normalize ties with, with uh, Israel. It also has the UAE and Bahrain. Uh, and these two have signed the Abraham Peace Accords in 2020. And it has Egypt and Jordan, who already have uh, peace treaties with Israel. What the first camp is saying, the Iran camp has been saying that War is the only way uh, to uh, deal with the situation between Israel and the Palestinians. So the only way is to destroy Israel, to have Hamas rule and create an Islamic Palestine state in, instead of Israel. What the other camp, the Saudi-led Arab camp has been saying, they've been saying that peace is the only alternative to what's going on. They're saying we support peace, we do not support war, let's stop the war and choose peace. So there's a huge difference between how each side looks at this. Now, they might intersect in, in calling for, for a ceasefire. Uh, the Iranians think that the ceasefire is good. That will probably hold back Israel from destroying Hamas. The Saudis and the other Arab countries cannot say no to a ceasefire because it will make them look as if they oppose peace, because naturally peace would come with this. You have to stop war in order to go for peace. Um, another note that I can um, say about uh, the relationship between Hamas and Saudi Arabia and the UAE, Gulf countries, especially the Saudis and the Emiratis, uh, are against the Muslim Brotherhood. They have... Uh, placed the Muslim Brotherhood on their list of foreign terrorist organizations. They did that in 2016 and 2017. Uh, Hamas is a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. So the UAE and, and Saudi Arabia have no love lost toward Hamas. They are against Hamas. They want to see Hamas gone. The only thing is that they're sitting now and watching and thinking, if Israel is going to take out our enemy Hamas, uh, so why be on the bad side of the popular moods? Just, you know, just sit back and call for a ceasefire and, and watch Israel take out your enemy, after which we can go back to peace. Um, I'll remind you that uh, yesterday in the evening, uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, talked to President Biden. And what the Saudi uh, top official said was that, um, that Saudi Arabia is waiting uh, until this war is over to resume peace talks. So thankfully, uh, if Iran or Hamas thought that by waging this war, they'd, be, they'd kill peace talks, they haven't. They only put it on, on hold. And obviously, no one now has time 
or energy or the bandwidth to be uh, talking about normalization since Israel is, is busy going after Hamas and since everybody else is, is doing something. So this is how the, the picture looks from the Arab world. Um, when you see people taking to the street, number one, um, take a closer look where these protests are happening. Most of them are happening in countries, in Arab countries under the control of Iran or that are allied with Iran. So for example, Algeria, uh, it's not under the control of Iran, but it is allied with Iran and what's called the resistance axis in the region. Syria, Lebanon, uh, Jordan is an exception. I think the uh, Jordanian government has been trying to uh, walk on the fence. On one side, uh, they try to be populist. They haven't denounced the Hamas massacre. On the other side, uh, I assume that there's some sort of cooperation uh, at least in terms of security and defense for other issues that that are not out in the public. So um, this is what's going on on the on the Arab side. Um, I know that uh, Shoshana has a long list of questions for me, but uh, I'll be happy to take them and other questions too. Thank you, Hussein. That's a, that's a really good start for, you're right, I have a lot of questions. <clears throat> the first one is, you mentioned Jordan and suggested that there's probably some level of cooperation under the table between Jordan and Israel, as there often is. Um, however, on the surface, things are not looking too good. What happened to the meeting between President Biden and uh, the King of Jordan and Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority and uh, President Sisi from Egypt? They were supposed to get together and talk about this, and it got canceled, I understand, maybe you know better, by uh, the Palestinians first and then the king. What went on? Well, what happened, and I think they probably regret canceling that summit. What happened was that uh, on the eve of the summit, reports surfaced that Israel uh, had attacked Al-Ahli Hospital in Gaza and that there were 500 uh, casualties. Uh, now, of course, no one uh, cared to vet the news. So this news started with Al Jazeera Arabic. It's, it came from Hamas. It went to Al Jazeera. And everyone, including uh, Western media, started uh, uh, reporting this as a matter of fact. Uh, as time went by and as uh, Western intelligence agencies took a closer look, uh, we now know that this could not have been Israel. The most likely culprit would have been an errant rocket fire. Uh, Islamic Jihad was... Uh, did fire a salvo of, of rockets on Israel. One of these rockets um, didn't go all the way and just fell short and caused a fire that probably killed a few Palestinians. So this uh, calling of the, the summit was peak populism on the part of both Mahmoud Abbas and the Jordanian king, to a lesser extent, Sisi. The thing is that the Jordanian King couldn't have possibly held the summit without having Mahmoud Abbas on the summit. If Mahmoud Abbas boycotted, this would have made the Jordanian king look really bad. So Jordanian king and, and, and Egyptian president had to just abide by by what Abbas decided to uh, how 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 Abbas decided to behave. And and in all in all honesty, Abbas has been probably the most populist of of everybody else. Uh, I, I just opened this discussion by reminding everyone that in 2007, Hamas did kill 450 Palestinians who, who worked for Mahmoud Abbas. So, and, and since then, Abbas has not talked uh, 
to Hamas. Not a single word. They haven't talked since. So Hamas, uh, so Abbas really hates the, the, the Hamas, but at the same time, he's not willing to, uh, to say it out loud. And there was one interview that he gave in which he said that Hamas doesn't represent the Palestinian people, which is true because Hamas, Hamas is not uh, one of the uh, factions that's uh, on the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. But he retracted that statement. So Abbas is being very populist and he's, he's acting very cowardly. And I think this is what led to uh, to killing that summit that was uh, scheduled with President Biden in Jordan. So on the theme of populism, is that what accounts for Queen Reina's statement from Jordan, uh, where she said there never has been such suffering of a people as is going on in Gaza? Uh, she didn't use the word genocide, but she did say that there never has been such suffering of people. Um, I would suggest she's wrong. But... She is a Palestinian and she is married to a Hashemite king. And he, as you said, walks a fine line. Tell us about the line. What's going on in Jordan that he worries about in terms of Palestinians? Well, look, uh, if, if you're Arab and you, wa you watch what's going on in Gaza, myself included, it's hard not to say that you regret the death of these Palestinians. But Absolutely. I think that the, the buck should stop there. I think this should not lead all the way to populism. This should not mean that they, you you uh, uh, you do not denounce the Hamas massacre of October seven. I, I don't think these these two things go against one another. But I'm I'm not a politician. I don't run any country, and you know, don't have any any uh, uh, base that's waiting for what I say. I think what 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 uh, uh, the Jordanian royalty are trying to. Uh, to say is that yes, we support the Palestinians, but they most of the time they stop short of actually denouncing Israel. And this is the trend in the statements of most of these countries. If you look up the uh, Saudi statements, uh, Emirati statements, they say that the killing should stop, but they never go all the way to say like, you know, Israel is to blame or there's, you know, uh, uh, war crimes being committed by Israel. So they avoid all of this all of these accusations that usually come either from Iran or from American universities, for example. So, unfortunately, so uh, so that I mean, I disagree with with the with what what the Queen said, and I would have really wanted her to say something along the lines that there's nothing as bad as killing 1,400 Israeli civilians. I mean, you know, nothing can explain it. No amount of injustice that has befallen Palestinians can justify this. Unfortunately, she didn't, and I think you know that's the um, that's the part that people like me didn't like. We didn't like it either. Um, so you mentioned demonstrations here. Am I right in thinking that the biggest, loudest, most anti-Israel and anti-Semitic demonstrations are actually not being held in the Middle East? We're kind of historically accustomed to that, but this time I think you're seeing them in Western Europe and the United States. Is that true? I mean, you watch that's them. Un that's unfortunately true. I watch them and I have many uh, friends in Western countries who support such line. And our friendship is currently not on the best of terms. And I think this is unfortunate because these are the Arabs who have the freedom of expression. And you can say, you can express what you have on mind as opposed to the Arabs who live over there, who 
if they break with the majority voice, um, they'll be uh, socially shamed or physically uh, harassed and abused. So I'm, I'm saying this because, you know, I know that even here in the West, there are many dissenting voices like mine. But even here in the West, these voices are scared to come out. The same uh, issues, that, that the same problems that chase them over there will chase them here. They probably have family who live in, um, in countries like Lebanon or Iraq or other Arab countries. Um, they have family who live here who can social shame them. So it's, it's, it's many factors. But this is only part of the problem. I, you know, what's, what's really interesting is that most of the time, the, the people who are uh, most anti-Semitic are not really the Arabs who live here. They're, you know, the, the decolonizing crowd that lives in this country, that's not necessarily Arab. I mean, you know, a big chunk of it is, is even Jewish Americans. And these people are obsessed with the idea of, of decolonization. And, and to my mind is that the absolute majority of these people did not spend more than a week in that part of the world. They don't know what's going on over there. They think that all the ills of, of, of these countries, like, like in, in Gaza or in Iraq or in Syria, that all the ills are caused by, by colonial Western imperials and that if we take those away, then everything will work out. Now, to these, I've, I've had a few discussions and debates and heated debates with these people. And I always cite the example that I, I, I lived, you know, I, I witnessed. Uh, in Lebanon during the 90s, I think the discussion was that Lebanon was in a bad shape because Israel was occupying part of the South. Now, Israel was in the South because, you know, there were at, at one point there were Palestinian attacks against Northern Israel. But then everyone was saying, well, if Israel withdraws, Lebanon will be, you know, this, this magnificent country. So Israel did withdraw in the year 2000. And if you, look, if you look up any trend line in Lebanon between 1995 and today, you'll see that it's, it has been going down. Every trend line has, has gone down. So this is the best proof that neither Israel nor Western colonial, some sort of white man, European something, something is responsible. We have to give, to give these people agency. And this offends me as someone with Arab heritage. I say, you know, don't act as if these people, you know, are can't be blamed. They have agency. They have responsibility. You know, they can work hard. They can improve things. We can't just throw everything on, on, on the U.S. or or Western countries or Israel. So that's the the biggest disagreement I have with these people. And you know, unfortunately, they they don't listen. And uh, and that's why you see them. You see, like you said, you see that the crowds are much bigger on uh, on Western universities, on, on U.S. campuses, than they are, say, at the American University of Cairo or even the American University of Beirut. So, uh, and, and to my mind, that's really unfortunate. So let me throw in another um, angle to that. So the colonialists left, and I'm thinking here about Lebanon, the French left, and then the Israelis left. But into that space, you don't only have Lebanese people with agency, you also had Iran arming and training people. And it seems to me that ungoverned space or ill-governed space or undergoverned space, any way you want to put it, leaves an opening for a country like Iran. And so you have Iran in the West Bank, you have Iran in the Gaza Strip, you have it in Lebanon, you have it in Syria, you have it in Iraq. In order for this war to end and for the Lebanese to reclaim their sovereignty in a, in a serious way, we have to get rid of Iran. 
the, the mullahs, not the people of Iran, but but is it necessary to go to the heart of the beast and take it out? Is everything else well, just mowing the grass? Well, there's there's no doubt in my mind. Over the past 30 years, I've been doing this, that Iran is the biggest problem behind all of the other problems that we see happening today. And I think at one point, I was living there at the time, Sometimes during the, the 90s, the situation was much better. I mean, look at, look at Gaza. Look up the, try to Google Gaza International Airport. And you will get pictures of the first couple, President Clinton and, and, and late, First Lady Hillary Clinton standing in Gaza City in 1998 next to uh, Yasser Arafat and his wife and inaugurating the International Airport of Gaza. So this, this is in, unimaginable now that you, you, you see an American president standing in Gaza City. So by any stretch, by any measure, things were much better in 1985 and 1995. And then ever since Hamas took over, things have been going down. And, and this, is the, this is the model that, that Iran offers the region. It, it's, not only, it's not only a policy, it's a model for Iran. I mean, Iran itself is, is going down. Iran itself is, is, is governed by a militia that, that's called the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC. And this militia is much stronger than the sovereign government. In fact, the, 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 the government is useless as not, and not sovereign. And that's why you always say it doesn't matter who gets elected president in Iran. And there's no point for CNN or anybody else to go and interview the Iranian president. These people are just puppets. The actual power is the, with the supreme leader and his IRGC. And this model was replicated in Iraq. It was replicated in Lebanon, in Gaza. They've been trying to replicate it in, um, in Syria. It was replicated in Yemen too, where you have a militia unaccountable to anyone, any government, any, anyone who's elected that, that runs the show, that takes people to war and that blames everything on the West of Israel. And when you do that, you'll be living in a, an ongoing status of war. You, you'll be living on a war footing forever. And we in, in the U.S. and the West, we wouldn't accept that to, to ourselves, you know. We used to criticize the U.S. For, for, being, for standing on a war footing for a long time. So how can we accept that Hamas would, 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 would just keep on fighting uh, until forever? I mean, you know, talk about double standards that's, uh, you know, really uh, in the news th these days. So this leads us to a question that someone sent in. Um, U.S. forces in the Middle East, Middle East have been attacked several times uh, in the last week. This this uh, listener says 13 times in the last week. Um, two questions. Under what circumstances do you think the United States will respond? And I guess the flip side of that is why haven't we responded yet? Um, it all goes to the same question. If Iran is at the center and Iran is even now attacking our forces, how do we deal with that? So I, I think what, what we have to do is not to respond to whoever fired at, at us. I think what we have to do, and now since Hamas changed the rules of the game, I think we too have to change the rules of the regional game. We can tell the Iranians openly and through third parties, through diplomatic channels, we say, listen, if, if anything happens to our troops anywhere in the region by any one of your militias, we are going to strike inside of Iran. You are not safe. Our troops are not safe. Now, if you establish that, 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 uh, that balance of terror with the Iranians, I think they will sit back. And, and 
you know me, I was not the biggest advocate of, of President Trump's policies, but I was totally supportive of, of him taking out Soleimani. And if you if you look out of the period after taking out Soleimani until the election of President Biden, the Iranians didn't enrich anything, even though we had pulled out of the uh, uh, horrible uh, nuclear deal. So this is how the Iran uh, uh, regime works. They take your measures, they, they see where's the red line, and they act uh, accordingly. So if the red line is, is their own safety, then they won't move. If the red line is that, you know, okay, you strike us in Syria, we strike you back in Syria or in Iraq, then they'll keep on, on doing it. Um, now, why are we not doing it? I think for no obvious reason, this administration just stayed with the, with the Iranian uh, uh, policy, with, with, with the idea that we can revive the Iranian nuclear deal for uh, a long time. If you remember during the Obama years, the idea was that we can have a grand bargain with Iran, that the Iranian, that the Iranian regime is reasonable enough that we can reason with them, we take off the sanctions and they become like, like any other country. Now we know that this grand bargain, grand deal will never, ever happen. So what are we waiting for? I mean, what is President Biden waiting for? Just tell the Iranians, you know, this is the, these are the rules. Hit us, hit Israel. Your own safety is, is, uh, is at stake. And watch what happens next. And by the way, I don't think that the war will happen. I mean, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not warmongering here. I'm just saying, you know, they know that we have the muscle. And if they see that we're serious, I think they will step back. Do you think they will activate Hezbollah at some point? There has been, there have been small clashes at the borders. There has been some, you know, um, so two questions come out of this. Number one, do you think they will? Uh, and number two, what do you, do you think the Arab states will think if that happens? Is it going to break down along the same lines that um, Israel and and um, Hamas breaks down for the Arab states? Or is it different? Well, to, your, to the second part of the answer, what the Arab states will do if there's war between uh, Hezbollah and Israel is that they will not support Hezbollah a bit. They they have a they have a bigger problem with Hezbollah than the one that they have with Hamas. Oh. At, at least in the case of Hamas, there's some sort of justification that you know they're Palestinian casualties. In the case of, of Lebanon. There's no justification whatsoever that, that, that you know, Hezbollah be involved in any kind of war with, with Israel. Now, the question is, will that Iran instruct Hezbollah to enter the war? Before the war, uh, Nasrallah, Hezbollah chief, gave many speeches in which he promised that if there's ever war with any one of, the, of these militias, including Hamas, that there'll be what he called the unification of the fronts, which means all the militias will fight together against Israel. So now the war comes to him and and he finds himself in a situation where that he promised to go to war, but at the same time, he doesn't want to go to war. All of Lebanon opposes war. If, if Iran instructs Nasrallah to go to war, he will go to war despite what the Lebanese want or think. We know that. But the question is, when will Iran order or instruct Hezbollah to go to war? Uh, I think to understand the answer to this question, you have to think of Hezbollah as the last resort. It, it's it's the kind of if Iran feels if the Iran regime feels itself in danger, Hezbollah is the glass that you break to save yourself. So they they're saving Hezbollah in case of Israel or the U.S. or anybody just decides to 
strike inside Iran and say take out the nuclear program or strike for inside Iran for other reasons. So Hezbollah is a, is a strategic asset for the Iranians and they often use Hezbollah not only in Lebanon. They used it in the um, uh, Syrian civil war. They used it uh, to uh, target our troops in Iraq. So Hezbollah is really very important for the Iranians and they're not willing to risk Hezbollah go into uh, war with, with Israel like what happened in 2006 only to save Hamas. Uh, now we have uh, public statements from Khalid Mish'al, the Hamas chief, in which he says, um, we're grateful We're grateful to whatever uh, Hezbollah has been doing across the border with Israel, but we really need more. They have to do more. And this tells you that Hamas has been so far disappointed that the allies have not come to the rescue, that they sort of thrown Hamas under the bus. Uh, what's the situation on the ground? Uh, so far, Hezbollah has not used any of its big missiles that would activate the Iron Dome. Uh, what, what they've been using is the ones that you carry that are handheld, the anti-tank missiles. And these have a, a limited range of, say, 2K or 3K, like two miles. So as long as this is the case, the clashes will be restricted to three to three, like some sort of a five mile from both sides. Um, so this is this will not go into full scale war escalation, especially Israel is at, at this point. I don't think Israel is interested to uh, be distracted to the northern uh, border. They have enough to deal with with Gaza and Hamas. I think that's true, and Hezbollah also, I suppose, has to take account of the fact that the U.S. has large ships in the Mediterranean at the moment. Um, I'm not sure that we'll use them. I'm very unclear about US war aims in this situation, but if I were Hezbollah, I'd have to worry about it at least a little bit. So let's turn you back though to what I originally asked you to do, which is media. Um, someone asked the question, is there a difference in the Arab world in terms of what Arab people see every night when they turn on the TV or they go to the radio? between the legacy media, newspapers, radio, interview programs, and what they see on um, social media, WhatsApp, uh, TikTok, Instagram, whatever. And could that create a division between, let's say, the older people in those countries and the younger people? Are young people getting stoked by TikTok videos or do they want nothing to do with this issue? So uh, on social media, they have, the same issue that we have in this country that um, social media is designed in such a way that will show you whatever you're interested in seeing and they end up living in echo chambers with very um, very slight uh, uh, time that they uh, that they engage in debate with the other side so uh, so social media is not really a source of information I mean it, it reinforces what these people have in mind but it's you know it's not a source of information for them now, the traditional media in, in the uh, Arab countries, this is divided. They're split. You have one that's led by Al Jazeera and Qatar. And you have one that's led by Saudi Arabia, its, its flagship Al Arabiya satellite, and other um, satellite uh, TVs that belong to the UAE or Bahrain or these guys, even Egypt and Jordan. So if you uh, watch these these two camps, you will find out that there's a huge difference between the two. Al Jazeera is, is, is just instigation. It's straight out anti-Semitism. It will almost say kill all the Jews. Now, they, they don't say it, but that's the impression that you get. They never call Hamas anything but resistance. 
they never call the war anything but Israeli aggression on Gaza, even though we, we know who started this. So um, Al Jazeera is, is pure propaganda and, and, and they get people on the air to uh, reinforce their message. And they have enormous, unlimited amount of resources. Like they have a, a, a live position reporter in every spot. If you take the uh, uh, Lebanese-Israeli border, they probably have five or six correspondents on each side. And you know, it's it's a tiny it's a tiny space over there anywhere. You can probably you could probably drive like fifteen minutes by you know between every correspondent and the other correspondent. So Al Jazeera is enormous, and 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 they're instigating against against Israel. Al Arabiya is much more nuanced. Uh, you you would see a few of, of the pundits that go on just, you know, staring up from time to time. But overall, the editorial line is much more professional. They try to avoid uh, emotional kind of, of reporting or stoking anger. Uh, they have had um, Israeli guests all the time. Uh, for example, they, they interviewed Khalid Mash'al, the, uh, the chief of, of Hamas, uh, who lives in Doha, they, they gave him 40 minutes or 50 minutes of interview. And right after him, they invited on Avi Dichter from, from Israel to, some, you know, to offer a source of a, of a rebuttal to, to Mashad. So uh, they have an interest in, in keeping things poised and, and keeping head school. You know? And, and I, as I said yesterday, MBS talked to, to President Biden and, and said, you know, we're just waiting for this to be over to go back to peace. So Al Arabiya understands that they're not breaking any, you know, they're not taking any one-way tickets with Israel. They're just trying to be as balanced as they can. And the people in the region, I think, they understand what they're getting. So now, you know, the the more moderate ones are watching the Saudi media, and the, you know, the ones who support Hamas or maybe the ones who are who live on U.S. campuses are watching Al Jazeera. That's how things are. Sort of like um, MSNBC and Fox here. So Absolutely, you, that's exactly. You tend to watch the media that already ascribes to your political proclivities um, instead of watching the other guys. I've always argued that people who believe Fox News should watch MSNBC because you have to know what the other people are thinking and vice versa. So I guess they have the same issues in the Arab world, which is interesting because it indicates more freedom of expression than I think some people believe existed there. So would you say if you're looking, and I know every country is different because that's how it goes, but if you're looking across the broad span of the Arab world, um, do they have a wide range to choose from? So they have these two, but are they also watching CNN? Are they also watching Sky News or BBC? Do they have a lot to choose from in their own context? Uh, well, they do, but you have to keep in mind that not all Arabs can understand CNN or or BBC. Sometimes they go to BBC Arabic or other services. Um, now, uh, as someone who's worked for for Arabic media, I have to say that usually the the average Arabic network will give you a lot of freedom on issues that they do not care about. So you know, like any reporting on Ukraine, you get all kinds of opinions with for, pro, against. And this applies even to issues within, like, uh, you know, issues in Iraq or in Egypt. So when they don't care about something, it's totally freedom of expression. But when they have, you know, when they have stakes, when they have, you know, their own policy, 
then they try to just put their foot down and 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 send it in a in a specific direction. So Al Jazeera clearly has a has an agenda for this whole Hamas and Israel thing. The Saudis don't really have an agenda. I mean, their agenda is just you know be nice and seek peace and and try to stop the fighting and you know be uh, sympathetic with with casualties. And that's why the uh, it's you have a bigger audience and a, and a and a bigger participation of pundits, mind you, you know, because when you invite people, if you have a specific uh, editorial line, you'll end up having only ten pundits who uh, who support your line. Whereas if you have a wider margin, then you have a you know a, a bigger diversity and variety of, of of pundits who will join you. So I think for for an average Arab, they will get a fairly healthy amount of choice. Uh, you know of of media and you know between Western media, local media, the the Qataris, the Saudis. I think they should be covered. They should be fine. So, would you say then, um, has there been a change? Do you think in Arab countries' opinions of the United States before and after October seventh, people understood basically understood that the United States was Israel's ally. President Biden came out with some very very strong comments about what happened in Israel and about the United States sticking with Israel. Um, does that change how Arabs in general, and, and I know I'm asking you to generalize about a lot of people across a very, very large region. So if you don't want to do that, you don't have to, but I'll ask you, um, how do they view the United States? Has it changed since the 4th of October, the 7th of October? Well, I don't think they have a specific, I mean, they understand that the U.S. is the biggest and staunchest ally of, of Israel. And that's not something necessarily that they want to fight against or be angry at. Uh, what they're interested in, I think at this point, many Arabs think that America is a democracy. And, and if you can change public opinion, then maybe you know you can uh, put some distance between Israel and, and the U.S. And that's one of the reasons why you see this, um, why you see Al Jazeera and, and the pro-Iran media trying all the time to drill the the idea that you know there's the, there are war crimes that that are being uh, uh, committed in in Gaza. So they think that if they get the Americans angry enough at these images, then they will get the U.S. to force Israel to step back. So so the point here is that they don't look at the U.S. as as having its you know uh, a line that that's that's unshakable. They think that they can sway public opinion. So my role as someone who goes very often, someone who lives in Washington and goes very often to explain the U.S. point of view, I say, guys, listen, no American opinion will ever accept 1,400 Israelis to be killed in cold blood and then say, okay, maybe, you know, we, uh, we maybe we should uh, reason with Israel not to take out Hamas. And I keep on giving them the examples that, you know, as Americans we know are true, that, look, even senators who are not best friends of Israel, even Senator Bernie Sanders, even even former President Barack Obama, I mean, even these guys who are either neutral or maybe to the side of the Palestinians more than Israel, even these guys have come out in force in support of Israel. So if you you have to understand why this is happening, you know you have to understand the logic of the U.S. I mean, at the end of the day, we do protect democracies, and we do like other democracies like us, and we don't want non non combatants to die. So uh, and and and. More often than not, I, I get positive positive response. You know, I mean, I get people who say, "Well, yeah, you know, you can visit us." I mean, that's that's how things uh, happen in Washington. 
Well, I don't know. Secretary of State Blinken doesn't entirely agree with you because he was publicly saying that um, it's time to break the cycle of violence. And the only way to end this is with the two-state solution for Israel and the Palestinians. I suspect the Israelis were not happy to hear that. Um, the Palestinians, I, I imagine it's a mixed bag, frankly. I would imagine that most, many Palestinians might like to be rid of Hamas as well. Where do you go with that, though? Is it where, where would Arab states go with that? Would they say, well, yeah, the secretary's right. We need a Palestinian state. Is he speaking to an audience that's listening? So number one, if we need a Palestinian state or the two-state solution, we need enough Palestinians who want the two-state solution. So it's not enough for the US or Israel, all the Arab countries to say two-state solution and then the Palestinians say, no, that, I mean, that doesn't work for us. So until we get enough Palestinians who say that, and we know that Hamas charter calls for the destruction of Israel and the creation of an Islamic Palestine in its place. And, and Hamas, Hamas in, in opinion polls, the last time I checked before the war, they, they had the support of one third of the Palestinians. And you add the other factions and you have at least one half of Palestinians who support the idea of having the whole thing for themselves. So this, I mean, let's start with the Palestinians. If the Palestinians come to us and say, okay, you know, maybe now we're thinking of, of, of a two-state solution, you know, it might be something worth considering. Now, number two here is that peace doesn't have to come after we decide on the states, even including between uh, Israelis and Palestinians. We can start by, with peace. We can sign all kinds of peace treaties and then talk about what sort of, of, of self-government or sovereignty or, or independence of shape or shape of Palestine. We don't have to withhold peace until we figure out all the arrangements that go between Palestinians and Israelis. And, and you know, I think that's where the Saudis were going. They were, and that's what where the Emiratis went. They said, "Okay, we're signing peace, and we're using our peaceful ties with Israel to try to get an arrangement that's in the best interest of the Palestinians, whether it's self-government, whether it's uh, independence, whether it's demilitarized state. You know, it, it can be anything. So I'd say this is very far off, and by us trying to put the end game ahead of everything else and say, "Okay, two-state solution." And let's start from here. I think this is really very far off. So let's start with peace and, you know, and work from there. Or maybe not even starting with peace. It seems to me that the the real importance of the Abraham Accords was to set the issue aside long enough for people on both sides to consider their positions. The Arab states of the Gulf had their own specific national interests. Israel had interests. Leaving the Palestinians to the side for a moment would allow them to decide, do you want to get in or do you not want to get in? And that's, as you were saying, you need to see where the Palestinians themselves want to go. So maybe what we should be looking at is the furtherance of the concept of the Abraham Accords, that the Arab states and Israel decide what works best for them, keep a seat at the table for the Palestinians, and at the time that they can or want to or have to, um, they can join. So it seems to me maybe, there's, maybe that's an out. I don't know. But let, let, let me add, you know, as someone who's been on this peace thing since forever, I think we need more clarity. We need to tell Arabs, not give wrong impressions. Okay, the Israeli state will be a Jewish state. You have to accept that and, and recognize it and pronounce it. Not only two states, one of them Israel, and not say that Israel is a Jewish state. Jewish sovereignty is part of the deal, of the peace deal. You know, we have to say that no one thinks that demographics is a, is a hidden weapon. It's, it's, it's out in the open. You know? I mean, we understand what's going on. So we have to put these out in the open and, 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 and sort them out. 
because so far, you know, I mean, what, what, what was happening during peace was that, okay, I'll say I accept Israel, but I wouldn't say that, you know, with Israel comes the, what I call the right of return. That's okay, then, then you'll have one Arab Palestine and one Israel that's half Arab, half Jewish. Oh, that doesn't, that doesn't work. So all these things have to be discussed honestly and frankly, not just like, you know, headlines and then, and, and then blame everyone when the headlines don't work out. Let's just, you know, be frank in this, in this conversation. So we're coming to the end of the program. I have to ask you a last question. And I go two ways here because people who have been listening to us for a long time, and we're now three years into this, more than three years into this, um, I'm always looking for an optimistic, positive answer to the last question. The last couple of weeks, it's been very difficult to find an optimistic ending to the program but some of my guests have managed to do it. So here's your question. You just outlined a mechanism that would take people forward to a better region, a better series of countries, a better time in their lives. Can we get there? Uh, absolutely, we can get there. And I think uh, Israel is right, is correct to take out Hamas. And I call on all Arab friends and governments and, you know, to, uh, to pitch in, to, uh, to help Israel do that. I mean, you know, not militarily, but uh, apparently we have so many things that we can do to support this idea that we have to take out uh, anyone who opposes peace, anyone who wants to destroy the other party. So, uh, so but I'm hopeful. And, and I think that uh, this war will not go forever. And I'm hopeful that we know that once the shooting stops, uh, the Arabs, uh, mainly Saudi Arabia, are ready, are standing by and, and ready for peace. And that makes me hopeful. And, and I hope it makes you too hopeful. It does, actually. It's a good way to end the program. Hussein Abdul Hussein, thank you again for a really important look into the um, the thinking and the minds and the and the hopes and desires of the Arab world, because we don't get that. I mean, there's an, an awful lot that goes on that we don't see. We don't speak Arabic. Most of us, you do, we don't. Um, and it really helps us to put the war and the region and the hopes for the future into perspective. Thank you very much for that. To My pleasure, Shana, always. We're going to ask you back, believe me. To our listeners, Professor Ephraim Imbar tomorrow, go on our website, si sign up noon tomorrow, and I hope to see you again. Hussein, thank you. Thank you.